morning. Welcome to everyone in the venue and those watching online at carneyfree.com. I wonder, can you identify with that video? At least the first part. And hopefully the second part too. We all can identify with that video, the constant pace of life can overwhelm us, can't it? I felt a little bit anxious just watching that. <laughs> and then I felt relief when Andrea walked out onto the lawn. We hope to get a little bit of the second part of that video over the course of these next seven weeks as we talk about unhurry already. If I were to ask you, how are things going these days? What's the expected answer? I, I, I heard it from a few. <laughs> busy. And to say you're busy is actually a good thing. That's the expected answer. I'm busy, to which people say, oh, good for you. <laughs> you must be important. It, like to say, um, you know, things are kind of slow right now. You know what people will do if you say that? They'll go into problem-solving mode for you. <laughs> well, we can fix that for you. I'm so sorry. It'll get going again. You'll speed up again, as if that's the goal. It's almost taboo today to say that I'm living a contented life. If someone were to ask you, how are you doing these days? You're not supposed to say, I'm doing well, thank you. You're not supposed to say, I'm kind of relaxed these days. I'm living a nice slow pace these days and I'm enjoying life as it comes. Things are going well. Thanks for asking, how about you? Can we take some time to listen how you're doing? No, don't got time for that. The standard is that you would be busy all day and then sleep a little at night. And that's considered good in our culture today, is it not? This is a relatively new phenomenon. For most of history, people worked and they enjoyed community during the day. During the day, they, they worked hard and then they had some time for family, and they ate together as a family, and perhaps there would be a community or a church activity, maybe, maybe not, but they did those things during the day, and that was it. When night came, they went to sleep, and there weren't all these extracurriculars all over the place. In 1889, when the light bulb was invented, 1889, just 130 years ago, Americans average, get this, 11 hours of sleep per night. In 1920, just 30 years later, after much of the Industrial Revolution had happened, Americans were only averaging nine hours of sleep per night. In 2020, Americans averaged seven hours of sleep per night. Do we somehow need less sleep now than we did 
did 100 years ago or 130 years ago? Have we evolved so much? Have we changed so much as people that we somehow need less sleep? Anyone want to guess where we're putting those additional four hours each day as compared to 1889? Any guesses? Let me give you a clue. It's not work. In fact, Americans are working less today than they were a couple decades ago. Uh, the average American today works only 34 hours a week. Millennials are winning that fight. And, and I actually give them credit for it. I, I, I think millennials, to their credit, have said, my life is not going to orbit around work. And I appreciate that. I think they have some wisdom that they've added to the American workforce to help us have a little bit more of a balanced perspective or related to work. But they are winning that fight compared to a couple decades ago. Those additional four hours a day are not going to work. The additional four hours each day are going to a number of different things, but the primary two culprits are these, screens and kids' extracurricular activities. Those are the two primary culprits for where we're devoting an additional four hours per day. The digital age was birthed back in 2007 when the iPhone was first released 15 years ago. Twitter was invented that same year. Facebook became available to anyone across the world who had an email that year. The, the cloud services, various different cloud and internet services were made available to the common person and to businesses all over the world in 2000 as well, 2007 as well. That was commonly called the birth of the digital age. Today, 15 years later, we touch our phones 2,600 times per day. We have these walking Petri dishes in our pockets full of all kinds of disgustingness. Uh, social media, the average American spends three and a half 3.5 hours per day on social media. Can you believe it? And I know some people spend almost no time on social media, so others are spending a whole lot more time. A professor told me last week that he asked his classes uh, how much time they were spending. In one class, the top was seven hours a day. And then right beneath that, there was plenty of students doing six hours a day on social media. Uh, just a little tip here, um, many, many Christians tell me they, they do not have time to read their Bible. Many, many Christians tell me that they've never read through the Bible, in fact. Do you know you could read through the Bible at 20 minutes a day and get through it in a year? And then you'd still have three hours and 10 minutes for social media each day. <laughs> Which I'm not recommending in case you didn't know. Meanwhile, the average American is watching TV for five hours per day. The only way I can make sense of these hours is they're doing both at the same time. Social media in one hand and TV in the other. And if you have teenage kids, you know what I'm talking about. Or, or maybe adults, I, I don't know. We, we, well, we have a rule in our family, one screen at a time. That's actually a family rule. It, it does damage to the... To the focus processes of our brain to be looking at two screens at a time. But that's the only way it can make sense of eight and a half hours between TV and social media per day. 
with uh, five hours of TV per day, there's this new phenomenon in America called binge watching. Have you heard that one? Well, raise your hand if you heard that, binge watching. And binge watching apparently is now considered socially acceptable. Friends, can I tell you that binge is never a good word? Binge is never a good word. In no context is binge a good word. Uh, the CEO of Netflix is a man by the name of Reed Hastings. And Reed Hastings has said that their main competitor over at Netflix is not cable television, it's sleep. And they're winning. This is a quote from Reed Hastings. Our biggest competitor is not cable, it's sleep, and we are winning. That's the first culprit, it's screens. The other culprit is the sports, band, theater, scouts, never-ending kids, extracurricular activity culture that never stops. That's the other culprit. A few years ago, I asked a wonderful Christian mom here in this church how she dealt with her kids' sports schedules as we're curious about how we will continue to organize our lives, what things will we say yes to for our kids and what things will we say no to for our kids. They will not decide, we will decide. But I was asking this wonderful mother in our church, how did she handle it when she had three super active boys who are all very competitive wrestlers who excelled in wrestling? How did she balance it all as this wonderful Christian mother? And she said to me, it was the best long years and it was also the worst long years. And I asked her, what would you do differently if you were to do it over again? And she told me, they need the sports. I just wouldn't have them compete in so many meets. They devastated our time together as a core family. They prevented our being together. Ooh. Uh, this isn't in my notes, but... We have a local high school coach who decided he's, he's not going to coach basketball anymore at the high school level because he has three kids, 10 and under, and he wants to be with his kids. Praise God. Praise God. I, I love sports. I played two varsity sports at a very large high school in Metro Denver, much like Kearney High. I was involved in other extracurricular activities. I was vice president of our school. I was highly involved. But our family ate together. It was just different culture, right? For those of you who are middle-aged like me or above, it was a different culture when we were growing up than what it is today. And what's expected of kids in every activity, band, theater, sports, scouts, you name it, is way higher. It's way higher than what's expected, what was expected for us 25 years ago. And all of the extracurriculars, that's hard to say, they demand more than they ever have before, and I'm just telling you, they can extinguish the flames of family and faith that we want to develop in our homes. And I'm telling you that because I've seen it. I'm not talking about ivory tower stuff that I've read about, I have seen it. That they can extinguish the flames 
of the things that we care about the most. They will dictate our schedules if we allow them to do so. If we are not very intentional about our boundaries, we will have no margin for the things that we care about the most. Culture-wide, my friends, we have a problem, do we not? The problem is this, it's called hurry sickness. This is the problem, we have hurry sickness. Across our culture, in our lives, in our families, in our homes, we experience today hurry sickness. We're told that we must do something, but we have no idea why we should do it. We tell ourselves that we must do certain things, but we have no idea why. Nobody is pressuring us to do them. We are pressuring ourselves to do them at times, and we're being strangled by it. Hurry sickness, according to John Mark Comer, who wrote a wonderful book on the subject called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he defines it this way. Hurry sickness is a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish more and participate in more things in less time. Accomplish more, participate in more things in less time. That is hurry sickness. You can self-diagnose if you have hurry sickness with these three questions. Let me help you. Number one, do you change lanes in the grocery store when one lane is shorter? Number two, do you shift lanes in traffic at stop, site, at stop lights when there are fewer cars in the adjacent lane? Number three, do you multitask and forget the task you were working on? <laughs> guilty, guilty, guilty as charged. I have hurry sickness. I have to fight against it. The other, um, there are many other ways that you can diagnose hurry sickness for yourself as well. A young mom told me this week that for her, hurry sickness has been related to comparison and striving for the next stage. Just like always looking into the future. How do I get to this next stage? Which, prevent, which prevents for her a contentment in the current stage. And she just shared with me and gave me permission to share that it looked like this in her life. She was a single woman and she said, I'll be happy if I can be married. And so striving for that. She got married and she said, I'll be happy if I can have a child. Led to a striving for that and a discontent for the present. She had a child and she said, I'll be happy if we can get out of this apartment and get a home of our own. Discontentment and striving for a home of their own. They got a small home of their own that they could be proud of, that they could be thankful for, and all of a sudden, what is she thinking? I need a two-car garage like all of my friends. And a striving for the next thing, which prevents a living in the present moment and it prevents a joy over what God has given today and it leads to this constant cycle of more, 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 gotta have it, gotta have it, gotta have it, gotta run, gotta run, gotta run. It makes you feel like you can't catch up. This grasping that we feel, this time famine that we feel is really not normal. After millennia of slow, gradual acceleration across our world, 
after hundreds of years of slow, gradual acceleration in our nation, in recent decades, the velocity of our culture has risen, has risen to a feverish pitch. And it's worth asking, what is hurry sickness doing to our bodies and to our souls? Uh, doctors in the room probably remember the cardiologist named Marty Friedman. Marty Friedman was a famed cardiologist in the mid-20th century, and he was a researcher into heart disease. And what he found in his research in heart disease, well, was this. Heart disease occurs in the general population, but it occurs much more frequently in certain people. It occurs much more frequently in type A people, like me. It occurs much more frequently in type A people who are constantly driven, who are striving, who are therefore impatient with the present moment, who are therefore irritable and therefore get angry more easily, and it causes booming rates of heart disease. Hurry sickness causes heart disease. How about anxiety? Does hurry sickness cause anxiety? Oh, please, somebody with me. Come on. Like it does, right? All the time to all of us. The more hurry sick you are, the more constantly you are, busy you are, the more anxious you will feel. Personally, I've thought about this a lot. When I am overly busy without appropriate breaks for rest, what happens in my soul is this. I start to lose creativity. I start to get irritable. I start to get impatient. And then all of a sudden, I notice my coworkers start to take a lot more sick days. They don't want to be around me when I'm like that. That's what happens in me when I'm suffering from hurry sickness. For other people, sometimes it triggers escapist behaviors of different kinds. Sometimes it develops into disordered priorities or the comparison trap or just a boredom with the most beautiful parts of life. Hear me now, when you are hurry sick, you are likely to get bored by things like slow cooking a family meal. You're likely to get bored with things like a daily devotional time of 20 to 30 minutes with God. You'll start to find the Bible boring if you're constantly hurried. Because the reality is, those areas of life which are the most beautiful parts of life, I might add, cannot compete with the dopamine hit in our brain that comes with YouTube clips or TikTok videos or the constant hurried pace of moving from one family activity to another, one kid's extracurricular activity to another. All of those provide this dopamine hit to us that becomes very addictive to us. And what I'm trying to explain here is that lesser desires take over and become substitutes for bigger God-given desires. And the bigger God-given desires get masked by the dopamine hit that comes as a result of constantly fulfilling our lesser desires with screens and constant activity. 
Perhaps you've heard that if the devil cannot make you sin, he'll make you busy because either way your soul will shrivel. Or as Carl Jung put it back in the 1940s, and Jung certainly was not a Christian, but he was definitely prophetic when he said way back in the 1940s, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. That's prophetic. That's a statement for 2022. Hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. Houston, we got a problem. Hurry sickness is just violent to the soul. It suppresses the most beautiful things in life. But what if I were to tell you that we're simply not made to live this way? And Jesus does offer solutions to this that are better than the ways that we're living. Jesus' solutions will require a change in lifestyle that won't necessarily require us to demolish our current lifestyle, but they do require a change in lifestyle, and Jesus offers a solution that is far better than the way many of us today, including me at times, are living. The solution is this. It's to exchange your yoke. Hurry sickness is the problem. The solution is to exchange your yoke. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11. This might be the most beautiful invitation that we have in the Bible related to our lives here today, not so much related to eternal life, but the kind of life that Jesus wants for us here in this world today. Many of you have uh, perhaps memorized this passage. I'm sure you've heard this passage dozens of times, maybe even hundreds of times. But what I'd ask you to do right now is just to sit back and maybe extend your hands like this. You can close your eyes if you'd like and just listen to these three verses. And I pray that they would be a salve to your over-busy soul. Jesus said this, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what we're offered, a yoke that is easy, a burden that is light, rest for our souls as we draw nearer to Christ. What's a yoke? A yoke is a farming implement that you put on a neck of an oxen to bind it to another oxen that would carry the two oxen forward as the farmer moves them for the purpose of plowing the soil before planting season. So when we think of plowing the soil for planting season, coming up here around the corner, we think of these huge tractors that would go through the fields and have large implements on them to be able to till those fields at a rate of acres per second or I don't know what the rate would be. We'll have to ask some of the farmers in the room. But very quickly, okay, the ancients that Jesus is speaking to back in the first century 
or really for many farmers around the world today in developing nations in Latin America or in parts of Asia and Africa, they would think of something that looks more like this, right? The two oxen with a yoke around their necks, and that yoke binds them together. And oftentimes, of these two oxen, what you would have is one would be stronger than the other, one would be the lead, one would be the guide, who would point the other one in the right direction. There would be a farmer behind them that's um, got an implement to till the soil and would have a little whip to keep the oxen going in the right direction. And Jesus' metaphor, of course, is really rich for us. He says, I intend to give you a different yoke that would be less burdensome than the yoke that you have. I will be the leader. Okay, I'll give you the direction. You'll be the weaker one, but you'll walk and step with me. And as you walk and step with me, my yoke is easy for you. My burden is light for you, and you will find rest for your souls. And we emphasize all of those things when we come to this passage, as well we should, but one of the things that I think sometimes we fail to emphasize is the fact that yokes are burdensome, amen? Like a yoke is burdensome. A yoke is handcuffs around the neck. That's what it is. A yoke would be incredibly burdensome. And so what Jesus is saying here is, take the yoke you currently have on and put it down. And take up my yoke instead, for it's easy. And in me you'll find rest for your soul. Maybe an analogy would be, instead of having something around your neck, go arm in arm with me as we walk forward. Or you think of that footprints poem, that I will carry you through the challenges of life. That's Jesus' yoke. It's not burdensome. It's a light yoke. It's ease for our souls. Walk with me. I will guide you. I will hold you well when it gets too difficult. But follow me on my way of life, and then you will find rest for your soul. Jesus is the way, right? Right? He's the way, and he's the truth, and he's the life. And what I find is church people oftentimes like to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the truth, all truth is in him, and he's the way to eternal life. He's the way to uh, everlasting life. But do we emphasize enough that he's the way to how to live right now? Like, that's part of the metaphor that he gives in John chapter 14. He is the way to how we should be living here today, right now. He's the way to real life in 2022. It's not just about memorizing Jesus' theology. It's about walking in the way that he lived. And friends, as I read the Gospels of Jesus Christ, I see Jesus' way of life like this. He was a man on mission. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was doing. He was very intentional, and he was going to change the world in three short years. And yet at the same time, Jesus could be interrupted. Like at the same time, even though he was busy, he wasn't so busy to spend time with people who were poor or handicapped or children, all of which take a lot of time. He wasn't so busy that he couldn't be interrupted by a wedding feast that in Hebrew culture would last days. 
with great eating and drink and the whole nine, and he would celebrate. He would spend time with seekers who came to him asking questions, and he would dialogue with them. He would spend time with his disciples, whom he was personally investing in. He was very busy, and yet he had time for Sabbath. Like, imagine this. The Savior of the world, who had the greatest mission the world has ever seen, he had three years to get it done, and he rested for 24 hours one day every week where he did no work. He relaxed and settled in on the Sabbath. Maybe he slept 12 hours between Friday night and Saturday. Who knows? We see Jesus taking a nap in a boat. He went up to the mountainside and over by the lake regularly just to be alone with his father. It was just part of his path of life to be alone and to pray for hours on end, to be still and know that God is God, to hear the voice of the Father. And so the question for us is, what is the yoke that we need to exchange so that we could have a little bit more white space in our lives and we could imitate a bit more the way of Jesus that would provide us a solution to the hurry sickness yoke that is around our neck? Again, I'm not talking about demolishing our lives. I'm talking about making a decision to step out of the fast lane in some areas of life to create space so that we can, consistent, so that we can consistently have family dinner. Create space so we can consistently spend time with God. To actually be still and know that God is God. And that as we step away, he is still active. And he's going to spin this world around on its axis with, with or without us, right? And therefore, we can step back and rest because we realize it doesn't all depend on us. Friends, that's what we're trying to grab a hold of though, this series. We're trying to grab hold of exchanging our yoke as we hold on to a much better yoke well, with Jesus. And each and every week in the series, what we're going to do is look at one practice, one spiritual exercise that will help us toward that end. I recognize these practices that are traditionally called spiritual disciplines. Sometimes people don't like them because they don't like discipline. Or maybe you don't like exercise. Um, but hopefully you like practice. You probably understand that all of life requires some practice. And these are practices that move us into the way of Jesus, enable us to become more like him, to practice his way, and then thereby, because we practice his way, well, we become more like him. We'll look at a different practice each and every week in this series that will draw us nearer to Christ as we do so. I love the way Ignatius of Loyola put it way back in the 1500s. He said, a man or a woman undertakes spiritual exercises in order to overcome himself. We take up spiritual exercises, whatever they might be, the different exercises we'll talk about these next seven weeks, in order to overcome ourselves, overcome our own temptations. In some cases, overcome our addiction to busyness and hurry. We take up practices to overcome ourselves. I would add to that statement, let's put that back up again, I would add to this statement from Ignatius, in 2022, we 
take up spiritual exercises to overcome ourselves, but also to overcome the culture that oppresses us. The culture that we are drowning in. The culture that will move in and will dominate our time if we let it. And so we proactively take up practices that help us take our lives back and with it some white space in which we can reemphasize the things that really matter. Today I want to talk about an ancient spiritual practice called Lent. And I'm only going to talk about it for about five minutes here today, but I'll, I'll set it up for a few moments before we take communion in a little bit. But Lent is this beautiful 46-day journey. It's a spiritual practice of contemplating the cross of Christ. And for 46 days, it's about fleeing lesser desires and pursuing greater God-given desires, which are oftentimes veiled by those lesser desires that we consume all the time. And Lent typically begins with Ash Wednesday. So you ask, are we going to practice Ash Wednesday? No, because it was last Wednesday. Okay, so for us, we're not doing 46 days of Lent. We're only doing 42 days of Lent. Lucky you. Okay, but Lent starts today for us, for our church. You might say, Lent, I thought that was like a Catholic thing or a Presbyterian thing or a Lutheran thing. No, it's an ancient spiritual practice that's been employed by all different kinds of churches across the centuries in order to do these things, in order to kill some of our desires and awaken us more to God's desires. It's an ancient spiritual practice to remember the cross of Christ and how much he sacrificed for us, and thereby we would say, I will sacrifice something to draw near to Christ. And as I sacrifice something, maybe I will take on something better. I will exchange my yoke over here with something that will be far better that enables me to walk with Christ more. Over these next 42 days, what we'd say, I'm taking off this in order to take on this that would be much better for me. I think Jesus uh, speaks to the idea behind Lent over in uh, this passage. Uh, let me get the reference again. It is uh, John 12, 23 and, 20, uh, and 26. It says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and then it dies, unless it does that, it only remains a single seed. But if we die to ourselves... If the kernel of wheat dies to itself, it goes into the ground and it's germinated, then it's able to produce many seeds, right? It's able to produce a crop. And so also if we die to ourselves, as Jesus calls us to do, then we're able to produce far more for his kingdom. Fruitfulness comes by overcoming oneself and overcoming one's culture. As we die to self and live more and more to Christ, and we say, yes, Jesus, you, you, you say to me, follow me, and I will follow you. As you died, as you went to the grave and you rose again, so also I use these 42 days to exchange my yoke, to loose myself to some of my lesser desires, and to take on a bigger God-given desire that perhaps has been hidden for quite some time in my life. That's kind of what Lent is about. It's a decision to say no to something or to say yes to something better. So you might choose to fast for one lunch, one time per week, and as you fast from lunch, you say, I'm going to go on a prayer walk for an hour. 
Instead of eating, I'm gonna go pray for an hour as I walk. Or it might be a decision like this, I'm going to fast from social media for the next 42 days. Or I'm gonna choose not to watch any TV one day a week. Or I'm gonna choose to fast from TV for 42 days. Or I'm going to choose to fast from alcohol. And then every time I feel this urge to drink alcohol, instead of that, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take out a journal. I'm gonna write down my urges and ask God for help. Or I'm gonna call a friend and ask them for help as I feel that urge. Or I'm gonna choose to fast from sweets, because it's hard. And Jesus did hard things. And he invites us to do hard things. And as I fast from sweets, I'm gonna say, God, would you awaken my appetite for what I really want? I'm gonna to choose to rearrange my schedule in some way, maybe reduce or even eliminate. Do you have faith with me to eliminate an extracurricular activity? Maybe I need to eliminate one activity. To stand up to someone and say, no, I'm not going to do that for the next 42 days because as a family, we need to eat dinner together three times a week. I mean, it's those kinds of small but significant decisions. What I'm not saying is go and demolish your life. What I'm saying is make a small but significant decision that could perhaps begin to exchange the yoke because small decisions help us line up more with the sacrifice of Christ and then begin to live a more fruitful Christian life. And I'm just going, I just want to tell you, decisions like this really, really matter. They make a huge difference in life. It was nine months ago that I was in a really, really bad place. Just before my sabbatical, I was in a really bad place. And in fact, I expedited my sabbatical with the elder's help because I was in such a bad place. I wasn't planning on taking it till this summer. Instead, I took it last summer because I was in a bad spot. And what was going on in my soul was I was really anxious, constantly anxious. And so, I had to stop and rearrange some things. I was anxious about the divisions in our culture. I was anxious about COVID stuff. I was anxious about being anxious. And so what I began doing was returning once again to my prayer chair, which I've talked about a lot, and then leaving my phone out when I went to my prayer chair, leaving it upstairs, and just deciding to linger again with God. Each morning. And then in addition, the other thing though that I decided was to turn this smartphone into a dumb phone by removing all apps, I'm sorry, not all apps, all news apps, all push notifications, all social media, by putting the phone to sleep at like 9 p.m., that I couldn't see it till 8 a.m. the next morning, things like that. And then I stepped off social media for about six months. And can I just tell you that anxiety started to melt away pretty quickly? I had a lot more time, and I had a lot less anxiety. I felt less hurried. I felt more present with God and family. Likewise, three months ago, I was starting to feel another urge, lack of peace, 
a joylessness. And so I had to just pause and say, what do I need to do differently? It meant come back to the prayer chair. And in the prayer chair, I've started to just begin my day with my hands outstretched like this with about four to five minutes of silence. God, would you quiet my soul at the beginning of this day? Is there anything that you want to speak to me right now? I'm your beloved child. What do you want to tell me? I open myself to your still, quiet whisper. And then I would start to write down words of gratitude. And for the past three months, I've just been writing down five words of gratitude at the beginning of every day. And I promise you, joy has returned to me. Okay, these are not huge lifestyle decisions, are they? They're small decisions that make a really, really big difference. My wife has told me that I'm more relaxed. (laughs) I feel more present with my family and my Lord. What's the yoke that you need to exchange? What's God calling you to over these next 42 days? What's your loving father whispering to you? What is your good friend Jesus? Your good friend Jesus. Inviting you to take off in order that you can put something better on. I'm going to invite the band up front here and invite Todd as well and Jordan over in the venue. And we're going to go into a time of communion. But let's just quiet our hearts for a moment. Oh, Father, it's good. It's good, Father, to, to be still and know that you are God. It's a really, really good thing to step out of the traffic and to know that you are sovereign and that you keep things going without us. It's a good and beautiful thing to assess our lives and to recognize where we have exchanged what you really want for us for something that is far less. So Father, we'd invite you to teach us. What is it that you want us to give up for Lent? (laughs) We'll just ask that question for a moment. What do you want us to give up in order that we could take something better on? As a church, would you give us courage to do that? We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you want something better than what we're currently experiencing. All glory and honor to you. Through Christ we pray.